welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Yeah, choose your favourite biblical character. Do that in five minutes. Go. It's a pretty, pretty big ask, but um, I ended up settling on Elijah. What do you think of when I mention Elijah? Is it the fiery showdown on Mount Carmel? Is it his race? Well, maybe not a race, but his outrunning the chariot to Jezreel? Um, Is it the angels who fed him? Is it the ravens who fed him? Is it the fact that he stood on the mountain with Jesus in his time? There are so many, so many things that we could look at in the life of Elijah. We could spend so long looking at his different aspects of his life. But last year I read a book um, that mentioned the process of learning to father that Elijah went through. And I thought it was a bit odd, a little bit different. I certainly never looked at Elijah from that perspective before. But the thought stayed with me and over the next couple of weeks I thought, oh, maybe I'll look up those verses on the spirit of Elijah and see what they have to say. So made a bit of a cool discovery. The last two verses of the Old Testament go like this. See, I will send you that prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. And then regarding John the Baptist, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So is it reasonable to look at Elijah from a fathering perspective? Absolutely. His actual legacy is to turn the hearts of fathers to children and children to fathers. But what is it about the spirit of Elijah that brings heart change? So as we look at that, we're going to have to skip over parts of Elijah's life. So depending on what your favorite part is, I'd like to apologize in advance that I may well not talk about that. but I think there's really a really valuable perspective for us to learn from the life of Elijah today. So Elijah is one of those characters that appear dramatically on the pages of the Bible. Even today, scholars can't identify where his small town lay, um, his background and encounters with God before he bursts on the scene in Israel. We can only guess at what they were, but we can be sure that this man had already spent much time already learning the ways of his God. So Elijah declares to Ahab, the king of the northern ten tribes of Israel, a drought that will only be broken at his word. Then God sends Elijah back over the Jordan River to a brook where he's sustained by ravens for a number of months. He would surely learn lessons during this time about God's provision. But when the brook had dried up, the Lord came to Elijah. Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid, go home and do as you have said, but first make a small cake of bread for me, and then make something for yourself and your son. 
For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. How crazy is that? God tells Elijah that he commanded a widow to look after him. A widow. Men of God were supposed to feed the orphan and the widow, not vice versa. And to make matters worse, Elijah was the one who declared the drought. She might know that because God's warned her he's coming. She knows that Elijah is a man of God. The widow lived in the very land where Jezebel, queen of Israel, had come from, so Elijah was in the very center of pagan worship. And to make matters worse, the widow's got nothing, like actually nothing. She's planning one last meal, and then she's going to die, both her and her son, but God. So here Elijah enters into his first experience of what it would be to be a father. What are, the, some of the, what are some of the aspects of fathering? Direction, provision, discipline, love, and being an example. And not just an example of how you should live life well, but an example of who God is. And we'll see these throughout Elijah's life. Right here at the very first meeting of this unusual family, Elijah gives both direction and provision by God's enabling. The woman follows his instruction, and the flour is not used up, and the oil does not run dry, as God spoke through Elijah. All seems well. The woman knows that God is real. She had that confirmed when Elijah turned up. And she and her son are living daily on miraculous provision. What a wonderful testimony, right? There would have been some changes for each one of these three as they settled into life with Elijah in in their midst. For Elijah, who had lived a solitary kind of existence and spent the last several months in complete isolation, there would have been quite an adjustment to living in a household. He suddenly had a boy around him who desperately needed a male role model and is living in a house with a woman who was not his wife, and I'm sure that would have taken a little working out. For the boy, he suddenly had a man in the household again, someone he looked up to, someone who cared for him, someone that over time he probably came to love. And his mum, well, she had the pressure of providing for him amid a long drought lifted from her shoulders, so she was probably much more at ease than she had been before Elijah had come. She had a provider once again and an assurance that this provision would last while she needed it most. She had her life and she had her son, all reasons to be thankful, until her son got sick and died. She said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Interesting. She's seen the direction that Elijah gave, the provision that God released through him, and now when something terrible happens, she assumes it's some kind of judgment or discipline. Remember that she was expecting to die way back when Elijah first arrived. And when all hope was lost before, she'd seen God come through and give her time with her precious son. The gods of her nation were fickle and cruel and demanding, imposing evil and pain even on their most devout followers. Who was this God that Elijah followed? Was he just another that teased with a gift while intending to snatch away the very thing he'd given? That boy was the widow's only hope for the future. Was she holding on to him above all things? Was his death the catalyst for her to realize 
that she needed to place her trust not in her son alone, but in the one who sustained him. Under the law of Moses, a dead body defiled the living. A man of God wouldn't touch it. But God had already broken down that barrier in Elijah by providing his food through ravens at the brook for months. And the woman's accusation was completely unwarranted. Anyone who carried any offense or was insecure in their identity in this tragic situation would surely have defended themselves. Her son's death wasn't Elijah's fault, but Elijah stayed silent. Where he could have remained distant, he chose to get involved. Why? Well, maybe he'd come to love the small family. So he took the boy, carried him upstairs, laid him on his bed and cried out to God, not accusing, but asking if it was God that had brought this tragedy, imploring God to let the boy's life return to him. God heard Elijah, and miraculously the boy's life was restored to him. Elijah took him down to his mum, and her response Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. This widow had been living for months already on the provision that was obviously from God. Those words that Elijah spoke the first day had come to be. But now, where she had seen both a demonstration of sacrificial love from Elijah and a demonstration of power from his God, her heart was moved. She changed from head knowledge of who God is and I'm sure Elijah had told her about who God is, to heart knowledge of God's love and faithfulness to her and to her son. For her, this miracle paved the way for a deeper, more lasting life to take root in her heart. Before she knew Elijah to be a man of God, now she knew the word of the Lord to be true. After a long time, God sent Elijah to Ahab once again. When they saw each other, Ahab, married to the queen of control and manipulation, like actually literally, twisted the situation, trying to gain the upper hand. And as before, Elijah gave clear direction straight from God. Manipulation would have no effect on him. When Ahab saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? I've not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. The multitude, a nation once founded on the blessings of God, now turned against him in living in the most abhorrent defiance and rebellion. In Deuteronomy, God had outlined that if Israel didn't obey him, among other things, the sky over their head would be bronze and the ground beneath them iron. This was certainly the case now. But when they were challenged, they said nothing. Actually, if you're guilty of something and you're challenged on it, I don't know if you're like me, but I tend to stay pretty silent too. When Elijah presented the plan for the day, then they spoke. They would be entertained. Who was the greatest? What a great contest that would be. What a good idea. For them, this was not a humbling of themselves. 
It was entertainment, the source of what would become a great story. There was no repentance, no changing of their ways, just an opportunity to break the monotony of the desperation in which they lived for one day. Philip Keller says in his book on Elijah, it's noteworthy Elijah demanded that a bullock, an ox, be butchered. He did not request a lamb, a kid, a bushel of grain, or a pair of doves. He insisted on a bullock. A priest, a prophet, a man of God, offered an ox and sacrificed to God only for his own special private sins and wrongdoing. It was an atonement made on behalf of just himself and his own immediate household. The sincere, implicit offering of a bullock declared to God his own awareness of his own unworthiness. The bullock was a sin offering. God had told Solomon years before, when I shut up the heavens, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. The people of Israel did not gather this day as the people of God, but Elijah was a man of God, seemingly the only one. And from that position, he humbled himself, sought God's face and prayed. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God! The Lord, he is God! The people declared the Lord to be God, yet their hearts were unmoved. That day, Elijah represented the Father, gave directions from God himself. He cleansed the land of those who had led the pagan worship in the nation, which was a form of discipline. And through persistent prayer, received the breakthrough of rain and released God's provision for the entire nation and for the surrounding regions. What a day of confirmation. Was this the beginning of a long-awaited turning point in the life of Ahab? Would he change his ways and obey his God? Would Israel be saved spiritually as well as physically? The adrenaline would have been pumping. God's power and sovereignty was obvious to all. Surely now Ahab would be impressed by God. So let's see how he responded. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with a sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Who did Ahab exalt before Jezebel? God? No. Elijah, a man. And in Jezebel's eyes, a dangerous man and one that must be eliminated. Did Ahab know that God was real? Yep. Did he know that God was alive? Yep. Was he moved in heart? No. So was the nation turned? No. What a feeling of utter defeat Elijah felt that night. And worse, if he was the only one who truly believed in the God of Israel, he better save himself. Jezebel had killed all the other prophets. This was no idle threat. Now we're going to deviate from the chronological story briefly before we come back to pick up where we left off. In the encounter that Elijah had on Mount Carmel with Ahab, he exhibited direction, discipline, provision, and a representation of God's power and holiness. Ahab had a degree of revelation about who God was that day, but not enough to move him. 
Elijah would come face to face with Ahab only once more. So let's take a look at what happened. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He's now in Naboth's vineyard where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, this is what the Lord says, have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, this is what the Lord says, in the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. Ahab said to Elijah, so you've found me, my enemy. I have found you, he answered, because you've sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. I'm going to bring disaster on you. I will consume your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and that of Baasha, son of Ahijah, because you have provoked me to anger and have caused Israel to sin. And also concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who, live, who die in the city, and the birds of the air will feed on those who die in the country. There was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he's humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. So notice the change of Ahab this time. He humbled himself. So when I was first thinking about this, I was thinking it was a bit of a stretch to say that Elijah spoke this terrible judgment out of love. Um, my best efforts at reconciling that was that Elijah was acting in love toward God by being obedient and doing what he'd asked him to do. But one night as I pondered, um, pondered that, suddenly it occurred to me that in Nineveh, the people and the king of Nineveh, when they repented, Jonah got angry. He ranted at God. He said, I knew this would happen. I knew you were a gracious and compassionate God. That's why I didn't want to come in the first place. Yeah, exactly. When God pointed out the change in Ahab, Elijah didn't get angry. He hadn't made this severe proclamation out of offense or anger or arrogance or vindictiveness. He made the proclamation because that's what God wanted him to do. And when God brought about a change in Ahab, Elijah accepted it. Imagine what might have happened if Elijah had spoken such a harsh judgment with a different attitude. Ahab was likely to have taken offense, as was his habit, or stalked off in utter rebellion against God, as was his habit, or gone and told Jezebel so that Elijah could be eliminated for such treason which was well in keeping with his past behavior. All of these possibilities are far more likely because of the character of Ahab than the one that actually took place. But Ahab knew that Elijah represented God and through a work of God alone, Ahab allowed his heart to soften before the God who had given every opportunity to turn to him. What was the key to unlock, unlocking the heart of Ahab? Could it have been love? It's interesting to note the wording of the spirit of Elijah passage regarding John the Baptist. 
to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. The spirit of Elijah was at work in Ahab to turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. Who was the source of that work? God himself, the Holy Spirit. Just before we pick up where we left off, back in Jezreel where Elijah fled, I'd like to share a thought that occurred to me last month as we went through the series on the promises of God. Could it be that Elijah had a promise from God that he would be the spiritual father of Israel in his day? I don't know, maybe. Could the response of Jezebel after the showdown on Carmel have been a death to the promise that Elijah carried? Could that have contributed to the despair that he felt? Which sent him barreling into a wilderness experience. It's pretty common to experience a huge deflation after a mountaintop experience, and many of us have probably experienced that at one time or another. So whether it was sheer exhaustion, whether it was pride, whether it was the loss of a dream, for whatever reason, Elijah found himself far away Sustained only by God, thoroughly despondent, and not knowing what the next step held. But God. In a gentle whisper on the same mountain where Moses had stood, a voice asked Elijah, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also, anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him. In this place of isolation and despondency, God met with Elijah and gave him insight into what was until that point hidden. There was more for Elijah to do. His time was not up yet. His time in Sidon had been a time of training for what was ahead, Although as a group the nation might have rejected God's covenant, there was still a small remnant whose hearts had not turned from God. God gave Elijah perspective and purpose and instruction and authority to carry out all he'd called him to. The season of preparation had passed. Elijah had left his servant in Besheva. Tradition suggests this may have been the son of the widow in Sidon. We don't hear of the servant again. Perhaps he went home to look after his mum. Instead, God gave Elijah a new son, Elisha. This son had already proved himself faithful in his own sphere of authority. He'd served his family well, served those he worked with. But when Elijah came, Elisha sacrificed his oxen, severing any ties to the old or any temptation to return. He left his community well, And alongside Elijah began to search out, strengthen, and encourage the faithful few in Israel. We don't hear a lot about those years, but there were definite changes. The schools of prophets had been established in the time of Samuel, but we know that Jezebel had killed the prophets of God. 
So when we hear of the many prophets in Gilgal and Bethel and Jericho years later when Elijah's time on earth was about to come to an end, these were most likely prophets that Elijah and Elisha had trained and encouraged throughout this period. There were potentially the hundred that Obadiah had um, hidden in the caves as well, but I'm not sure whether they lasted all the way to the end or whether they only lasted halfway through. In fact, over the next portion of scripture, there are several prophets of the Lord, both named and unnamed, that play a significant role in the destiny of this nation. I would like to suggest that although Elijah became and remains famous to this day for displaying God's power, actually his more lasting influence was on those he encountered one-on-one in an act of love. Actually, his um, encounter with God on the top of Mount Carmel had a huge impact in the spirit realm but it needed to be brought down to earth. By loving people, by training people in um, hearing God and how to worship God, whatever it was, he was bringing um, onto earth that breakthrough that had already happened way back on Mount Carmel. But these people he encountered one-on-one in this act of love, the widow and her son in Sidon, Ahab after the murder of Naboth, living alongside and training Elisha, and the prophets. These people would in turn influence the people around them. When the time came for Elijah's time to end, for Elijah to leave, the prophets seemed to know about it. We read of Elisha's bold request to receive the double portion of Elijah's spirit. In our Western way of reading it, perhaps we err towards thinking that Elisha was maybe a little bit greedy or a little bit proud We wonder what agenda was behind his request. In those days though, it was the oldest son that would receive a double portion. It symbolized leadership and the provision that he would need to lead well. It represented God's blessing. Elisha had given up his life in inheritance with his earthly family. He was asking to receive the inheritance of a son, a son that would carry on the work of the father. God had already chosen Elisha to succeed Elijah before Elijah got to the cave. And so God granted the desire of Elisha's heart and gifted him a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And as a son, Elisha stood on the foundation that Elijah had laid. It was Elisha that released Hazael to become king of Syria. It was Elisha that sent the servant to anoint Jehu king over Israel. That was because of Ahab's repentance. It was in the time of Elisha that God dealt with the family of Ahab. Once the fire of God came that final time for Elijah, Elisha immediately stepped into a fathering role and began to give direction, provision, discipline, an example of who God is, and to display love to those he was in contact with. The purpose of a father is to raise sons who will represent him well. In the time of Elijah, God released fire from heaven for three distinct purposes. The fire of cleansing on Mount Carmel, the fire of judgment on the arrogant soldiers, and the fire of love to draw Elijah unto himself. As we look over the last couple of decades, but the last year particularly, there's been a desire and a hunger growing in many that God would come powerfully and move among us, that he would let his Holy Spirit fall and transform the lives of many. Maybe as we pray for him to move, he's calling us into a journey of letting go. Letting go of control, letting go of offense, 
letting go of outcomes, letting go of our best laid plans and backups? Will we allow his fire to come and do its work in our hearts? The sacrificial fire of cleansing as we confess our sins and allow the blood of Jesus to robe us in righteousness. The fire of judgment, or you might like to think of it as the refiner's fire, as we humble ourselves, die to our own ways and align with his. And the fire of passion and first love to draw us to himself, that we live out of his strength and enabling and not our own. Will we allow him to transform our hearts to become like his, that we may represent him well? Who have you identified with as we've looked at the life of Elijah tonight? Is it the widow who believed that God was out to get her? Have you been stripped of the one thing that you held dear? How are you processing that with your heavenly father? Is your posture one of accusation or one of humility? Maybe it's Ahab. Although you know that God is real and you've seen his power, you've fought him every step. Will you ask him to demonstrate his love to you in a way that you can receive? Is it Elisha? who serves where he is faithfully and is hungry for God and awaiting his appointed time to step into the new. Maybe you're in transition right now. Is it Elijah as he learns to father, as he's hidden and learning to trust in his God, or as he learns to love those with which he finds himself? Perhaps you've experienced success in days gone by and find yourself at the moment in obscurity, completely defeated by how things look. What is it that the Holy Spirit's whispering to you? What is it that God wants to restore in your life? What hope and purpose is he instilling in you? Who has God brought along your path for you to love? What is it that you need to let go? Chances are God's plans and purposes for you don't look like what you thought they would. Where do you find yourself at the beginning of this year? Could it be that God's been working in ways that have been hidden until now? What's he revealing to you? Now God is a holy God who longs to pour himself out among us. He's also a God of love, our heavenly father who wants us to represent him well to those he brings along our path. In the time of Jesus, John the Baptist who moved in the spirit of Elijah came before to prepare a foundation for the one who was to come. John called the people to turn their hearts back to the one true God, to repent, to be cleansed, to make themselves ready. John is known for the way that he pointed constantly to the one who was to come. When Jesus came on the scene, John quickly faded from prominence, and he's famous for those words, he must become greater, I must become less. Maybe that's a challenge for where you're at. Maybe you're particularly gifted. There are many here who are. Why don't you see God move through you as powerfully as you like, or as you would like? Could it be that he wants to see his love and compassion for others reflected to a greater degree in your heart? You know, Jesus was often moved with compassion when he saw need before him. He responded to people out of the Father's heart for them. I'm going to finish by reading a few verses about how pivotal love is and all we do, but just before that, um, for me, I identify probably with three out of the four people, but as I looked at the widow who got stripped of that one thing that she held dear, I thought of a process that 
God's taken me through over the last few years. I can remember um, it was Easter Camp 2010, and we were in worship, and I just got this realization that there was something in my heart that I was holding equal with God, and it just hit me, and I was just like, wow, okay. And so God took me in a process, and it took years for me to actually let that thing go to the point where I'd actually let it go. Um, Not long after that Easter, I had a dream, and the whole night long, I was putting this thing in this massive hand. It was like God's hand was here, and I was just putting that thing in there, letting it go, letting it go, letting it go. It's not that I'd picked it up again, but I had to keep letting it go. And so that was a process he took me through over a long time. And um, actually last year, he did something similar. He removed something that I, it was taking all of my time, all of my thought space, all of my heart space. And it was like, yeah, okay. Um, fortunately, that didn't take as long to process because I learned a few things the first time around. But this time around, he had somebody right there, which I knew was there, but I just was preoccupied, um, who needed my input and needed um, me to show her love. And so that has been a stretching, growing process. I do not talk to you about love because I'm a lovey-dovey person. In fact, there were quite a few people, there's a few people here tonight who have known me for years. Um, They can vouch for the fact that historically, I am known for not being so loving, not being so compassionate. Um, It's been a way of describing me for a number of years. But God is taking things from me that take my focus away where where he's wanting my focus to be. And he's putting things in my path that he wants me to be wrestling with and allowing him to shape me and mold me into who he wants me to be. So do you musicians want to come up? And I'll just read these verses and then we'll create some space for a few moments for you to engage with God. Um, Maybe he's wanting you to let something go. Maybe he's wanting to place something right in front of you that will stretch you and grow you. Maybe he's got other things he's wanting to whisper to you. Maybe purpose, maybe um, things that have been hidden. And so I'll just read these verses and then just give you space. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.